Hi, I'm Mary Wurtson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to consider the biblical Christ for yourself. My husband Dave begins our study of Revelation chapter 4 today with an intriguing question. What would it be like to actually see God today? The first century church lived in dangerous times like our own, and the Apostle Paul gave them a revelation which breathed courage and strength into their lives. Let's join Dave as we seek today to catch a glimpse of the throne. Have you ever wondered what it was like to just suddenly appear in the presence of God, to actually be in God's presence? What would it be like? What would you feel like? What would you see? What would you hear? You know, I think that a lot of you have been out there in a world and very possibly uh, you could care less about that. In fact, most of the secular world kind of thinks of when you mention God, they think of somebody like George Burns smoking on a cigar and doling out his advice to John Denver who kind of needs some help along the way. Or some of you, when you think of God, you think of Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, you think of the Mount Sinai, and you can hear the rumble of the thunder, and you know you see the lightning bolts coming and engraving the Ten Commandments in the stone, and maybe that's all that you think of when you think of God. But I want to suggest to you today that I believe that some of you are really stressed out. I think some of you are really worried. I think some of you are just out there kind of going through this life It's kind of happening, and you've just come through another week, and you've done your school responsibilities, and, you know, you've done your playtime, and you've done your thing, and now you're at church, and yet, to be really honest with you, God's kind of a million miles away. And what I want to suggest to you that I think one of the greatest needs for us as American believers is to catch a glimpse of God on his throne. I think a lot of us have a very idolatrous conception of what God is really like. And because of that, we just don't know what it means to be awestruck by him. We don't know what it's like to reverence him. We don't know what it's like to really understand who he is. Now, we've been studying a book where Christianity was not like a worldwide phenomenon. Christianity was not uh, buildings all over North America, multi-million dollar complexes. We're studying a book that when the Apostle John was running down the book of Revelation, he was exiled on an island. The emperor Domitian had lowered his heavy artillery against the Christian church, this new little movement, and he decided he was going to snuff it out. And believers across the Roman Empire, it was beginning to be just kind of a sporadic thing, but it was growing in its momentum, and for the next couple hundred years, it was going to be a bloodbath that the world had hardly ever seen up until that point, as the Roman Empire tried to snuff out those early Christians. How did they make it? How are we still here today believing in this wounded Savior on the cross who gave his life for us? How are we still here today believing in the empty tomb? How are we still here today just singing, Jesus is beautiful? It was because prophets like John help us to connect with a vision of the way things really are. What I'm going to talk to you about today is some of you might experience similar experiences during this week. Because you might go home to be with the Lord. You never know. None of us ever know. And the world that you think is so important, the plans that you think are so strategic, you're going to find out just like that just really aren't that important. 
And what Revelation chapter 4 gives us a chance to do is we've come through the letter to the seven churches and Jesus has made these kind of an evaluation of the church and then he's given a correction to the church and then he makes promises to the church. What Revelation 4 does is help us to answer the question, how can we know that Jesus will deliver on his promises? Look at the end of Revelation chapter 3. Remember we studied the last time we looked at Revelation 3 and the, the letter to the church of Laodicea? We read those famous words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, any individual, any of you will hear the voice of Jesus, and I want you to pray that you're going to become really alert to the voice of Jesus, recorded and revealed in this word, in the word of God. If anyone hears my voice and open the door, Jesus doesn't, doesn't barge into your life, he doesn't, he doesn't bring a tank into your life, he doesn't bust it down like a, like a police SWAT team. Jesus says, if anyone will hear my voice and open the door, then Jesus says, I will come in to him and we'll eat together. We'll have table fellowship. Remember we talked about that? And the Lord Jesus this week wanted to have table fellowship with you. But he also makes another promise. Look what else he says after verse 20. He says in verse 21, to him who overcomes, to the one who's the victor, I want you to realize that from the concept of the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about believers who, through the course of their lifetime, keep on believing. And they believe right on through until the Lord calls them home. In the New Testament, the idea of deciding for Jesus is not just freely receiving this this ticket into the eternal kingdom, you stick it into your pocket and you save it for later when you're going to need it. That's not the way that belief in Jesus is talked about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, belief in Jesus is learning about the identity of Jesus. It's learning what he did for you in the cross. It's learning what he did in rising from the dead. It is hearing his voice and inviting him to come into your life. And then through his power living within you, not separated from him, not trying to perform for him, but by relying upon his power within you, you overcome. You are a victor. You're a victor. What is the victory that overcomes the world? It it is our faith in Jesus Christ. But our faith needs to be something that's being exercised on a daily basis. Every single day, I'm deciding whether I'm going to be trusting in Jesus, whether I'm going to believe in his presence in my life, whether I'm going to allow his power to give me victory over the seductive influences that Satan's bringing against me. I want to really stress to you, John talks about those who overcome. It's a present tense. Those who are overcoming. Those who are victorious through the power of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about you trying to do this in your own strength. Understand me. You can never do it unless you're responding upon this indwelling Christ. But I want to warn you, if you're the kind of person that says, Oh, yeah, I believe. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave all the guys that believe them. Should not perish, but have eternal life. Man, I believe that when I was a four, but I could care less. Man, I'm into this and this and this. And, you know, I just kind of come to church because mom and dad forced me to do it. But I really want to get out there and have a good thing. You say, but I've got Jesus. I don't know. If you really decided for Christ when you were little, you do have. Because he'll never leave you or forsake you. But if those are the attitudes of your life today, maybe you're an adult. They come here and you sit here and you hear this stuff about Jesus, but man, you're not really into it. It doesn't touch your heart at all. You never hear anything happening inside. I'm not talking about someone that's questioning. Jesus loves your questions. He loves you to wrestle with him. 
But if you're just sitting here and you could care less and the book of Revelation just means about zip to you, then I don't know whether you're an overcomer. I don't want to give you false assurance. Because the book of Revelation talks about the one who is overcoming. It uses a present tense that they're doing this. And this was the real thing. This wasn't cultural Christianity. There wasn't such a thing called cultural Christianity in the first century. Those seven churches that Jesus wrote to were under the gun. You could lose your life for believing in Jesus. When they they came around on an annual basis and had the big emperor time, when everybody needed to declare their allegiance to the lordship of the empire, and the believers in town, in Laodicea, in Smyrna, in Philadelphia, the believers in town didn't bow down to the Roman Caesar. Man, it was serious stuff. People lost their lives. People were fed to the lions. This was the real thing. And that's what the book of Revelation is talking about. And that's what believers, your brothers and sisters around the world, many of them are in places where they really understand what that kind of talk. And so I want to really warn you in the midst of a place where Christianity is kind of like the dominant atmosphere you believe in. A guy just writes in the paper, you know, that many of you are not a Baptist, if you're not one of these Bible thumpers, you're not going to fit into this culture. They're showing you the dominant influence that our culture represents. But you can be breathing all this atmosphere and you've never let Jesus inside. And I want you to understand it's the one who overcomes. But what happened to this individual that's allowed Jesus to come into their life and, it, and that faith is building their lives? What happened to this individual? Look what it says. I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat with down with my father in his throne. What is he talking about? Do you hear what Jesus just stressed to you? He says that he wants your future to be sitting with him on his throne, and Jesus' throne is the throne of the Father. Where is Jesus today? Jesus is sitting in the place of authority. He's sitting in the place of power. When I'm praying with Tommy before Tommy goes into surgery, the reality of the matter is you might go underneath an anesthetic. You might have the anesthesiologist not do as good a job as he needs to be. You can have the surgeon slip. While you're in the intensive care recovery room, people cannot notice the bleeding that's there. And just like that, I can get a call, and in the next few days, I have a funeral. That's where I live as a pastor. But that's where all of you live as individuals. But you know what? If you're looking forward to Jesus' throne, which is the throne of God, it's incredible what God says here. Jesus' throne is God the Father's throne. And Jesus is saying, I lived on the planet, and I showed you that if you rely upon me, we can be victorious, and I want to invite you to come and join with me on the throne room of heaven. Now, man, that's an incredible destiny for you. It's an incredible destiny for me. And my prayer as a pastor teacher is that I know there's no human way that I can get you to live for that throne. I know there's no human way for me to get you not to live for your next big car. To get you not to live for that next big house. But I can just tell you that a whole lot of things that I thought were really, really, really important when I was 17 just don't mean anything today. And my greatest fear for some of you is that you'll live your entire life and get at the end of it and realize that you don't have anything. It's all in the past. It's all done. It's all over. And because I love you, I want you not to live for that. I want you to live for God's throne. I really mean that. 
I want you to live for God's throne. I want you to live looking forward to a day when you're going to sit with Christ over the throne room, the authority of all of heaven and earth. In fact, the Bible tells you that you're going to be ruling and reigning if you've trusted in Christ in a universe that's going to be brand new. It's going to be more beautiful than anything on earth you've ever, ever seen. This world is just a little tiny foretaste. And the beauty that you see is just a little bit of what's going to be out there in eternity. I don't want you to miss that. The problem with the American church is that we've got myopia. We don't see the throne of God anymore. We come to church and we're asking, does church meet my needs? Does the preacher tell me some things that, that kind of help me feel? Kind of like taking a good tranquilizer. Did I like the music? Do I like the church staff? Do I like the Sunday school? Is it meeting the needs of my kids? Brothers and sisters, the church needs to do all those things, but that's not what we're about. We are about a God who's sitting on his throne. I want you to see him. The reason I want you to see him, because when you see him, if you'll ever catch a glimpse of him, he'll help you not to be so stressed out. You'll be able to take job losses. You'll be able to take doctors telling you might have malignancy. You'll be able to take kids that suddenly are taken away from you in accidents. You'll be able to take great, beautiful, powerful times of prosperity. You'll be able to handle the good times and the bad times because you'll be focused on where you need to be focused on, the throne of God. Jesus promised us if we overcome in him, we're going to be given the throne of God. And I think most of us American believers says, who cares? And I'm praying that the Lord is going to start to work in our heart that we're going to say, oh, Jesus, what an incredible, incredible promise. Some of you men are trying to climb up the ladder and become really important in one of those big buildings in Dallas. You know, if the Lord doesn't come back and another thousand years comes by, you know, some archaeologists will come groveling through the rubble of your office and they'll hardly be able to figure out what it is. They'll piece together the glass of your building and they'll say, man, what in the world were these people doing? It won't mean anything. You say, Dave, how do you know that? Because that's what we've done with the Roman Empire that John was facing. That's what we did with the Babylonian Empire that Daniel was facing. But you know what? If you're focused on the throne of God and that's what's really important to you, then you're going to be able to live this life with perspective, with skill, with peace, with joy. And that's what John wants us to do in chapter 4. He wants to catch you up with him into the very throne room of God. What's it like to really catch a glimpse of God? Let's look at it, chapter 4. After this I looked, after the revelation of Jesus walking through the seven churches, after receiving the inspired letters to the seven churches, says, after this, after those letters, after that vision of the exalted Christ moving through the churches, evaluating them, John says, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open to the heaven. Man, this is something you've all wanted to do. What's it like to be up in heaven? What's it like to see and to hear and to be able to experience what heaven is? A door was opened to the heaven. I heard the voice, just like I heard it the first. In chapter 1, he heard the voice of Jesus. And it says that the voice of Jesus sounds like a trumpet. I want you to realize that when Jesus talks, you know, most of you have the idea that when Jesus talks to you, it's always so quiet and he's always so gentle. It's kind of like, I often use the illustration, it's the Mr. Rogers Jesus. And man, you need that corrected, because you're not going to recognize when Jesus talks to you like a trumpet, you're not going to wonder it, because you don't blow trumpets in the church. It needs to, we need to be playing 
quiet organs in the church and harps in the church. Well, man, right here, it says the voice of Jesus sounds like a trumpet. Some of what you do in church should wake you up, capture your attention. And I tell you, when Jesus started talking to John, man, he didn't fall asleep. John is not the guy that was into the first church religion where it was quiet and the pastor was so, so soothing and, man, his voice was like that beautiful radio voice. John didn't fall asleep in the presence of Jesus. His voice sounded like a trumpet. What does Jesus say to him? He says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. In Revelation 1, Jesus says, I want you to write the things which are... I want you to write the things which you have seen first, the vision of the exalted Christ, and I want you to write the things which are. Now I want you to write the things which shall be after these things. And now we move into the things which will happen after these things. We now move in the rest of the book and we'll be talking about future things. After the church age, after we have the whole working out of those seven kinds of churches, we're going to have those seven kinds of churches down through the church age. We learn the church of Philadelphia will be taken away, but now we move into what's going to happen at the culmination of history. What is going to happen on this planet? That's what this book's going to tell us. After these things, at the culmination of history, as we move towards the end of time, what's going to happen? And Jesus says, come on up into heaven. I want to show you what's going to happen after these things. John says that once I was in the Spirit. It was like he was, he was just inspired by the Spirit. He was in like an ecstatic trance. And, he's, and, and, and spiritually, he's taken right into the throne room of heaven. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. He never describes as someone who's sitting on it. Because the Scripture teaches us that God is light. The Apostle Paul taught us that God is light and he dwells in unapproachable light. God is spirit and he dwells in unapproachable light. And so when we have Ezekiel chapter 1 describing, he'll say he saw kind of the the form of a a man. But then he starts to describe all kinds of, of reflections of gigantic light. And so as we're thinking about now, John is talking about he is actually getting a vision of God the Father. But God the Father is a spirit so that the visual things that you describe in a way that we can kind of relate to is going to try to bring together a lot of different things that create the awe and the wonder and the grandeur of what John experienced. So he says he saw someone sitting there and the one who sat there had the appearance. They're not, this isn't the what, you know, we can't see the essence of what God the Father is, but they have the appearance, and then he uses these beautiful gems. He talked about jasper and carnelian. Talks about a rainbow resembling an emerald and circling the throne. Now, what is John trying to describe to us? What he says is that he looks at what's on the throne. The throne dominates this chapter because that's what this chapter is about. John has now been caught up into the throne room of God. The first word that he used to describe what he saw was like the reflections of light off a diamond. The word jasper, in a, later on in the book, at the end of the book of Revelation, and it says that the jasper was as clear as crystal. In the ancient world, when we talk about jasper, we would talk about an opaque, non-translucent stone. But in the book of Revelation, when it talks about this precious stone, it talks about something that's crystal clear and that can radiate light in incredible ways. 
And so I think it's probably best for us to understand what John wants us to picture is that as they look at this vision of the eternal immortal God, it's like looking at the rays of sun that are glancing off a beautiful diamond. When you ladies get engaged, and man, you remember that time in your life when you got that diamond slipped on your finger. You went around like crazy every time. Everything you did, you had to use your left hand. You know, you were making sure everybody see it. But one of the neat things about a diamond is you let the sun hit it, and it radiates that incredible light. In fact, some of you remember when Jonathan was looking for a diamond for Leslie. You had to put it under a microscope, and then you shine lights in it. And, and in order to evaluate the kind of a stone it is, you do that under a microscope and let that light radiate from that. Well, just imagine a gigantic diamond, a crystal pure diamond, the most beautiful diamond you could ever imagine, hit with with incredible intense sunlight. That's what John is experiencing. Now, if you've got problems today, if you're discouraged today, I want you to know that that's the one that ultimately loves you. That's the one who sent his son to die for you. And the things of earth will come strangely dim if you'll catch a glimpse of who's really on the throne. Because for the rest of this book, we're going to be groveling around with Antichrist and earthquakes and plagues and frogs and all kinds of weird stuff that we're going to get to try to figure out what it's all about. We're going to be talking about battles on planet Earth and and guys that are like Hitler and world wars and all kinds of things. But before we do any of that, Jesus wants us to get our eyes on where the control room is. Where things really happen. Where the power really lies. And the great message of the book of Revelation is on planet Earth, guys strut their stuff. And emperors come and go, and armies march, and and plagues strike, and earthquakes come, and all of that stuff. But you have a Savior, and you have a living God today, who's still on the throne. And one day, when you're caught up into his presence, it's going to be like the experience. Jonathan's saying, this is the experience. He can't describe it. It's in another dimension. It's just incredible. But it's like brilliant sunlight just hitting against an incredibly large diamond, radiating that incredible light everywhere you can look. It's also like a sardius, which is a red stone. So we have not only the flashing of this incredible white light, but we also have it mixed with red. And and some of you that are visual can begin to capture the drama of this glorious scene. And then the whole thing, this whole throne is circled. Some of you have seen a complete 360-degree rainbow. In this case, we have a 360-degree emerald rainbow. And the rainbow reminds us, as we look at the awesomeness, the sardius with its red, the red reminds us in God's word of the judgment of God, the fiery judicial wrath of God. But the emerald green surrounding the throne reminds us, especially the idea of the word rainbow, it reminds us in the book of Genesis chapter 9, when God promised that his judgment would be tempered with his mercy. And it reminds us as we go through the book of Revelation that there's not only going to be the tremendous outpouring of God's wrath, but there's also going to be the sweet green refreshment of his mercy and his love. And those that will enter into covenant with him, into his rainbow covenant, not, you know, not, you know, Jackson's rainbow covenant, but the real biblical rainbow covenant, those that will do that will receive the mercies of God. So John the Apostle's vision of his exalted daddy in heaven, is of this radiating gem with its red and its white, but with this beautiful emerald green rainbow that's surrounding it. 
And it pictures God's purity, his holiness, his judicial judgment, but also his pleasing, gracious, refreshing mercy. What else does he see? He said, now surrounding the throne, there were 24 thrones. Oh, man, we've got a big throne in the middle, surrounded with this beautiful emerald green rainbow. Now surrounding that throne, we have 24 other thrones, and seated on them are 24 elders. They were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now one of the big things that you have to debate in the book of Revelation is who is the identity? Who are these 24 elders? Well, as you go through the book, we're going to find out that these 24 elders will bring the prayers of the saints before the Father. We'll have these 24 elders, whenever God pours forth his judgment, they're going to join the archangels in bowing down before the Lord. As we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to find out that they sing praises to God for what he has done for the saints, which would mean that that we should probably not interpret these 24 elders as being the church. Some of you have probably been taught in earlier in your life that these 24 elders represent the church. The problem with that is as we go through the book of Revelation, they praise God for what God has done for the saints. And they rejoice with what God has done for the saints. And therefore, there's a distinction between us as the church and these 24 elders. As we study the Old Testament, for example, when Micaiah, who was one of the prophets in the days of Ahab, he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne. And he said to his heavenly court, and, he, and God in Micaiah carries on this conversation. God the Father carries on a conversation with his heavenly court. Isaiah will picture the throne room of heaven and will have myriads upon myriads of angels. And we also have in the book of Revelation, we'll have a vision where we see the throne of God high and exalted with millions of angels around the throne. And we join in that great worship at the end of time. But what we are being exposed to in the book of Colossians, it says that there are orders. Ephesians talks about principalities and powers and all the different orders in the supernatural world. I believe in the book of Revelation. In chapter 4, it's focusing on the heavenly court. And what we have in the heavenly court are, are, are we have these angels, these 24 angels, who are higher up in the rulership of heaven. They're higher up servants to God. And we're going to learn that they, that they execute God's commands at will. And one of the things that we can learn by the number 24 is that in the Old Testament, when they set up the priesthood for the temple, like the Aaronic temple has 24 courses of priests. And one of the things that it tells us in the New Testament is that the, the Old Testament sanctuary and temple was a copy. It was patterned after the heavenly court. There were 24 courses of priests in the Aaronic priesthood. Probably they reflect these 24 elders that are in the higher echelons of the rule of heaven. And so I think that we have the 24 elders as being these higher echelon angels. It's part of what we're going to experience that based upon the book of Hebrews, because you are in Christ, because you have trusted in Christ... Even these 24 elders are ministering spirits to meet your needs. Like one of the things that they're doing around the throne is they are executing God's commands concerning you, his protection of you, because you are the beloved ones of God. It's one of the things that John wants you to understand. Did you see this awesome scene of heaven? And some of your loved ones, like my mom and dad, right as I'm teaching you now, they're sitting up in heaven or standing in heaven or singing in heaven, and they're going, David... Man, you're not even touching the surface. You got, you're just, you just don't know what you're talking about. And that's true.
My mom and dad are there. That's true. If they were here today, if they came back from heaven and they told you about this stuff, you think this stuff isn't important? You said, oh, man, if you'll focus on the real thing, when you get ready to pass on into eternity, you won't be quite so scared. And your loved ones won't have to quite grieve like they do. They'll miss you. But, man, if they've caught a glimpse of this throne, they're going to say, oh, man, what a wonder that my loved ones are experiencing that. And these 24 elders that are around the throne of God, these angelic beings that are right there in the presence of God, being very careful to carry out all the decrees and all the plans of God. And Revelation wants you to know it might look like things are really out of control. It might look like things are really out of control in your life. But the book of Revelation says, man, the 24 elders are on their throne doing what God tells them to do. And eventually this world's all going to fit with the plan that God is writing. And we're going to find that this book is incredibly realistic. This book knows what every single one of you have experienced, whether you've been a policeman or a fireman or a medic or a doctor or a counselor and, or maybe just in your own life you've experienced the horrors of war and all that. I want you to realize that this book of Revelation knows all about that stuff. And you can allow the evil, you can allow the violence, you can allow the immorality to suck you down. And you can become a cynic and you can become negative and you're going to die a grumpy old woman or a grumpy old man. Or in the eyes of faith, you can accept John's testimony, a man that gave his life for what he's recording here. And you can believe that one day you're going to catch a glimpse. You're not going to catch a glimpse. You're going to actually go to this heavenly throne room. And because of that great hope, you're going to be able to run your life strong. You're going to be able to keep your marriages strong and keep your family strong and raise your kids the way they need to be raised. And you'll be able to escape that black hole of cynicism and negativism. That's what this vision's about. Not only saw the 24 elders dressed in white, which is a heavenly dress. It represents the purity and the holiness of God. The golden crowns represent the fact of what I've been describing to you, that they're the lords, they're the rulers of this heavenly court ruling under God's authority. It says, from the throne there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. I think the closest thing that I've been thinking about this passage is the the next time that one of our great big thunderstorms rolls forth, if you want to understand this chapter, go outside. And I know some of you kids are just scared of it. Don't go outside in the face of a tornado. But if you want to understand the awesomeness of this chapter... Because all the Old Testament saints, David did it, Asaph did it, Korah did it, and John is doing it here. And in the book of Revelation, whenever God really wants to get us to get our attention, he talks about rumbles of thunder, he talks about the strike of lightning, and he talks about earthquakes. If you stop and think about it, those are three natural phenomenon that still generate incredible awe. The tragedy of the, of the technological world is that when I talk to you about a thunder and lightning storm, you think of a low moving over a high. You analyze the cloud movement, the wind movement. you got 50,000 thunderheads that are climbing up, and you understand the differentials between the cloud and the earth. So you analyze the whole thing scientifically, and you miss the whole thing. In fact, most of you haven't gone out. You haven't just gone out and watched the thunderstorm building. And watch those wind movement and watch those clouds build into 50,000, 60,000 feet. 
and realize that our marvelous jets, like when Dale's flying, he doesn't fly into one of those things. He says, man, man's technology can handle these thunderheads. No problem at all. They divert all over creation not to go through one of those wonders. And God uses that to give you a little inkling. That's just a little tiny inkling of the power of God. And you need to do that. The next time a thunderstorm begins to build, you need to go out and you need to watch that storm coming in. You need to listen to the might of that thunder. You need to hear that roar. And you need to feel, you need to see those lightning strikes. You need to be able to see those bolts come down and just singe a tree. I've never been in an earthquake, but if you ever get a chance to experience an earthquake, then you'll understand what dread. If anything disgruntles you and makes all the things you think are dear and solid just totally destroyed, it's in an earthquake. And those are the things that are used to describe the wonder of God. You know, when I go to disobey God, when I go to turn away from God, I remember what I'm teaching you right now, and I want you to remember it. Because you have an idea that God's smoking a cigar like George Burns. Ah, it's no big deal. You want to be immoral, go right ahead. There's no fear of God before your eyes. No fear of God before my eyes. Worship God. (laughs) Who wants to worship God? I'm into worshiping this rock group. I like the strobe lights that they do. And I like, you know, I like the high that they give me. I like the excitement they do. Man, I don't worship God. I I get into this, this group that I'm really devoted to right now. I want you to go out and look at a thunderstorm and compare your rock group to that light show. Because that's the one that you need to bow before because that's just a little bit of fact. That, that doesn't even reveal clearly because our weakness has put a twist in that revelation so you can't totally really experience the wonder of what God is and the beauty of what he is. But the thunder and lightning storm is one of the ways for you to begin to understand what this chapter is about. When you get to heaven, it's not going to be boring. Thunder and lightning storms are not boring. They strike you with awe and wonder. What I want you to do is I want you to go outside and say, my daddy is in charge of that. My daddy is the one that creates. In fact, the the grandeur of the clouds and the beauty of the the sunlight shining through them should just move you to praise, move you to adoration, move you to thanksgiving. Because your daddy is the one that's behind all of that. And those earthly storms, that, that, that earthly thing, is just kind of God just throwing out his paints, trying to reveal to you just a little bit of how powerful he is and how wonderful he is and how mighty he is. Whether it's Mount Sinai or the vision of Jesus and God in Revelation, the thunder and lightning always accompany the revelation the glory of God. Before the thrones, the seven lamps were burning. They were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God also before the throne. There was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We learned back in chapter 1 that the seven lamps represent the spirit of God, the sevenfold spirit of God. In the book of Zechariah, we learned about the Jewish lampstand that has seven lights. And we learned that it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit. And so as John looked at this revelation of God the Father, the invisible God, and we have this radiating crystalline light, the diamonds and the red sapphire, and we have the emerald green mercy of God, we have this rainbow and thunder and lightning. What an awesome thing to be able to see. He reminded us that burning before the throne are seven. Now, these are not lamps. We've been studying for the last several weeks about lamps. These are not lamps like you would take into your house. These are torches. They're like, like brilliant bright lights that can stand the winds that are going to come against them. 
And here the Holy Spirit is pictured as a sevenfold perfect torch that you can take out into the evil of the world, you can take out into the challenges that Antichrist might bring against it. And this sevenfold torch, this perfect torch, is going to win the day. And here we have the sevenfold Spirit of God before the throne of God. And what I want you to see is that John puts together the whole Holy Trinity. Because in chapter 5, we focus on Jesus as the Lamb of God. I'd like you to read this week about the worship of heaven. Because what I'm really trying to get across to you is if you'll learn to enter in to this heavenly worship a little bit now, it's going to help you. You want to have freedom from stress and worry? Worship. I want to ask you, how many of you as moms and dads, adults, children, how many of you, when no one knows, you had some time where he says, God, you really are powerful. And when I look at the sky, look at that sun coming up, I want to adore you because that's your sky, it's your sun, you made it for me. As I'm driving to this hospital, I don't know what's going to happen to Tommy. Beautiful sunrise comes up and says, God, I'm just so thankful that the beauty of the sunrise reminds me that no matter how dark it might be in the, in the waiting room at, at Methodist, you promised me that there's going to be sunshine for Mary and Dave and Tommy and Riva, and we're going to be neighbors forever. So as I grow older as a pastor and my friends grow older with me, I don't have to run away from them, but I can go through the suffering with them, and they can go through the suffering with me. Because we worship. I want you to think, of what is it going to be like when you're standing in the court of heaven? You're standing in the court of heaven. And you're looking at the beauty of Jesus. What do you think you're going to be thinking about then? And that's what I want you to start to think about now.